As we come uh, to the scripture, let's pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, we're grateful for your word and we trust that it will have its perfect work in us. Your word is alive, it's powerful, it digs deep, it uh, reveals. And so we pray that it would reveal to us um, who you are and how you're working in us um, for your good and for your glory and for our good. And so, Father, please, I pray now open this passage to us uh, that we may hear and see and believe in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, uh, Judges chapter 16. Uh, I want to begin with verse 23. This is the word of the Lord. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. And now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the, on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bows with all his strength. And the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. And then his brothers and all his families, family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaal in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel. 20 years. And then we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now the question for us this morning is, what does God want us to see from this incident uh, in the life of ancient Israel, in the life of, of, of Samson? It's a bit difficult in part because we have all kinds of pictures, at least I do, in my head when I think of Samson. Uh, some of them from the movies, some of them I colored when I was a kid in a, at Sunday school. And uh, so it's kind of hard to get all of that out of my head in order to really think about uh, what God is saying to us uh, through this passage. Um, I think at least that a statement that Winston Churchill made of Russia in 1939 uh, may help us understand Samson uh, of Russia. Churchill said... Russia is like a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Uh, and if you can say, I don't know what that tells me about Russia, then you got it. Uh, it's a complicated, Samson is, story. What really is going on here? What's God want us to see well, if you turn back to chapter 13 in Judges, we, we see that, that, that this sounds, it starts out very promising. Let me just read a bit. 
Um, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah uh, of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you're barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink. Eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Uh, So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. And, and when we read this, there's a certain excitement about it, at least in biblical terms, because every time there's a woman who cannot bear a child and an angel comes and says, you're going to bear a child, that's a significant thing. Uh, we think uh, in the Old Testament of Sarah and past childbearing age, an angel comes, you'll give birth. And she did to Isaac. We think of Hannah, who couldn't bear a child, but yet prayed and God gave her Samuel, in the New Testament, if we bump up, we think of, of Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, similar situation. And certainly Jesus, different, obviously, in conception, but yet still uh, a miraculous kind of event surrounding the birth. And so here is this one who's being born to this unnamed woman, but her husband, um, Manoah. And we see, too, that, 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 that he's... he's uh, uh, going to be a Nazarite, which is a fascinating vow, normally almost always taken voluntarily. If you go back to number six, you can see that a Nazarite vow was taken by a man who wanted to consecrate consecrate himself before God, generally for a period of time, uh, generally to concentrate his attention wholly upon God for some task or some calling or, or something very special between this man and, and God. And so uh, there were certain signs that a person had taken this, this vow and they would all uh, show the seriousness of his, of his consecration, his training, if you will, for something special in the eyes of, uh, in the eyes of God. Uh, he, uh, no alcohol, so, so no feasts and parties and all of that. Uh, um, he couldn't touch anything dead. As a priest, so no uncleanness about him. And he wouldn't cut his hair uh, as a sign to say, in one sense, I'm too busy for that. I'm, I'm, I'm involved in other things. I'm not caring so much about my appearance. What I care about is my relationship and this consecration to God. Even his mom uh, did some of that as well uh, because she was going to give birth to this child who would be a Nazarite from the beginning of his life to the end. So his whole life in that sense consecrated to God. He had a special calling, a special task. It said in verse five, he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And so that was his, 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 his calling. 
There's something interesting about this whole setup, though. It's a bit different than what we've been experiencing as been walking our way through the through these cycles of the judges. You remember how the cycle goes? The cycle begins with the people forgetting God and doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And then God gives them over to an oppressor. And after some time, because the oppression gets so great, the people call out for the mercy of God. He comes, sends a deliverer, a judge, a deliverer, and the judge delivers them in various ways we've seen. And then uh, there's peace in the land. But notice when I read verse 1. It said, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And then he announces the coming of this judge. What's missing? There's no crying out. They've been under the hands of the Philistines. It would be a total of 40 years. But there's no crying out. Now it could be that just the author of the judges, the narrator is assuming that we would know that or we would assume it as we're reading it. But but there's stuff as we read through this, we realize that it, it seems like the people were quite content at this point to live under the hand of the Philistines. In fact, at one time, uh, Samson, we'll see, uh, causes a bit of a ruckus with the Philistines and his own people come to him and say, what are you doing? Don't, 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 don't rustle any, ruffle any feathers here. Everything is fine the way that it is. So much so that they actually turn Samson over to the Philistines. And you begin to think, huh, that's a very dangerous place to be. It's a very dangerous place to be where you're living under the rule of your enemies and you're content. But you think all is really well. Uh, we know that. I mean, we, we know there's times when things seem to be going well. The economy is going well. Our health is well. And, and, and so we may not want to ruffle any feathers anywhere, even with God. And uh, let's just keep things the way that they are. Well, for whatever reason, they... Were quite content, it seemed. Maybe they thought there was no hope. Uh, maybe they liked it. But what we can't miss is the wonderful grace and mercy of God. Because even though they weren't crying out for a deliverer, He sent one. What's that remind you of? Just at the right time? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, anyway, the mercy of God we see in this situation. But we'll notice also this expression in this first verse, that again, Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, in his sight. Well, we're optimistic at least because one is going to be born uh, and he's going to come and at least begin to deliver them from the uh, oppression of the Philistines. And, and, and we're, ho- we're hopeful as well because in the end of chapter 13, we read this, verse 24. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in um, uh, down between Zorah and Eshtaol. And so God was blessing him. Even as he was growing up, and the Spirit of the Lord was stirring him. And if that's that's all you get, you go, this looks really promising for us. Until we get to chapter 14, just the next passage. Verse 1, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah 
he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must take away from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. And we go, Rats! This looks so promising. And now here he's going after this this woman, unnamed, but this woman, and, and she's a Philistine. And you remember all the admonitions throughout Scripture from Moses and, and even through Joshua and even in Judges. Don't marry outside Israel. It wasn't a racial thing. It was a religious thing. It wasn't a racial thing. It was a faith thing. It was, you need to, if you're going to make such an intimate covenant as marriage is, you need to marry one who has the heart that you have, has the faith that you have, has the God that you have. Don't marry outside of this, because if you do, then you're likely to follow your wife's or your husband's God's. Not the true and living God. And we see over and over again how that takes place in Israel. Parenthetically, of course, the same for believers, for Christians. We're not to marry outside the faith. We're to marry others who are believers in Jesus. We're not to be unequally yoked is the language. We're not to be so intimately related to one with whom we cannot worship. We cannot share God. Same thing. But he does. And and notice the contrast of expressions. Did you see it? In in chapter 13, verse 1, it says, They did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then here in uh, uh, chapter 14, verse 3, he says, She is right in my eyes. There are two different looks here, God's and his. Evil in the sight of the Lord, right in my eyes. That little right in my eyes will, will, will spring later into a more fully orbed summary of the people in the days of Israel then, in the days of the Judges. In fact, the very last verse of Judges 21, the very last verse in this book, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, as opposed to what was right in God's sight, what was right In God's eyes, that's the danger always. And we do what is right in our eyes. This tells us something about the definition of sin, at least biblically speaking. This is how sin is defined. Sin is defined as doing what is right. I'm sorry, sin is defined in doing, uh, going against that which is right in God's eyes and doing what is right merely in our eyes. Our shorter catechism in the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines sin like this. This is how I memorized it as a kid, this language. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. The point is, the standard is God. The standard is the law of God. It isn't what's right in my eyes, but what's right in his eyes. Sin is the violation of that. In the days in which they lived, in the days in which we live, the standard Outside of the scripture, outside of believers in Jesus, the standard is what's right in our eyes. What's right by my standard. Even perhaps what's right by our 
community standards. But that isn't really God's way at all. It's what's right in what's right in his eyes. And you see, that's just the sin of sins. You remember back in Genesis chapter 2, that God has Adam and Eve, and he says you can eat of every tree of the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What was God meaning in that? He was meaning that he's saying, I'm God. I get to define what's good and evil. You don't. But yet the evil one came and said, don't listen to him. You are the one. You should do what's right in your eyes. You should be the one who determines good and evil. That's exactly what's happening in the days of Samson. And even in our day, we see in our own hearts at times to do what is right in our own eyes as rather than doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. That's, that's the great danger. And of course, this expression, to do right in your own eyes, means that no one then ever does anything wrong. You evaluate it and you say, well, it was right. And if everybody evaluates what's right for them, then then there can't be any evaluation. This can't work on a social level, on a community level, because everyone does what is right in their own eyes. I mean, even the Nazis thought what they were doing was right. They were doing the world a favor. So whose eyes are the ones that determines what's really good? And it can't be the community's eyes, because uh, there was a time when The majority of us, the majority of Americans thought enslaving others was a good thing. So we can't trust that. No. Only trust God. And this also would keep then this attitude, doing what's right in my own eyes, uh, could keep... Samson from really worshiping God, really delighting in God's ways because he wanted to do what was right in his eyes and that was contrary to what was right in God's eyes. Well, they go down to get this woman for Samson and and you probably can walk through this whole account uh, with me, as they're going down, they see a lion, and all of a sudden the Spirit of the Lord comes on Samson and he kills the lion. I've often wondered, what did Samson think about that? I mean, what was that like? Was, was he walking along and saying, I feel the strength? And I'm, or, which came first, the strength or the inclination to kill this lion? I don't, I don't know. But, but here he was, you can only imagine, I can only imagine, I'd be rather astounded by all of this. be like walking over to that piano and going and lifting it up and going, oh, I didn't know I could do that. But he kills this lion, you see. Now, interestingly, his parents don't even know he did this and he didn't tell them. Uh, and then uh, they'll go down and sees this woman and she's right in his eyes and they must go back home because they return back later. And on the return trip, he sees this dead carcass. Now, it's likely that he broke his Nazarite vow by touching this dead animal, making it dead in the first place, and then touching it, and then coming back to it. And while they were gone, some bees took up home in this carcass of this lion, and there was honey. And so he comes and he eats some honey out of this lion. He goes then to the uh, to, to meet his uh, future wife, and um, uh, there he puts on a big feast. I don't know what he served at the big feast, but it's likely he broke his vow again, unless he just served everybody else. Literally, in Hebrew, it was a drinking fest. 
And so now, um, since he was alone, Samson was, the Philistines said, well, you can't be alone. So they gave him a posse, a court, a group of men to be with him for his wedding of 30 men. And then Samson had this great idea. I'll tell you a riddle. So he tells them a riddle. It's here. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. That was all about the lion and getting the honey out of this killer, this lion. And um, he gave them this riddle. And he says, if, if, if you solve the riddle, I'll give every one of you a new suit, essentially. And then he says, but if, if you don't solve it, you have to give me 30 new suits. He was pretty confident, I'm sure. But then the men of the city, as you might remember, came to this woman and they threatened her with her life, that of her family. Said, you need to get the answer to the riddle from Samson. So ultimately, she breaks him down. And he does tell her, she tells them, they answer the riddle correctly. Samson's furious because he knows the only one he told was this woman. And so then he is so angry that he goes out and he kills 30 Philistines, takes their suits, brings them back, gives them to the people in his court. And then Samson's wife is given to his companion, his best man. Her father says, I don't want you with this guy. And so he gives her to the best man and things seem to be settling down. Except Samson comes back. And when Samson comes back, he goes to get his wife, but the father wouldn't let him uh, do that. And so now Samson is all upset because the father, her father gave his wife to his best man. He can't fake this stuff. I mean, you can't. This is, this is amazing stuff. And so he, 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 Samson gets all upset. So he goes and gets 300 foxes or probably jackals. And he ties them together with their tails, puts torches uh, between them on their tails and runs them through all the fields of the Philistines and burns them all down. Oh, they get upset with that. So they come to the people of Judah and the people of Judah said, hey, well, what's going on? And they said, well, it's, this is what Samson did. And they go, well... We'll give you Samson. So they get Samson. And they said, Samson, we have to bind you up. So they bound him up with new ropes. And he went to the Philistines. But when he got to them, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. The ropes were gone. And he killed them with the dentures of a donkey, jawbone of a donkey. And, uh, and then he got thirsty. And the Lord, in response to his prayer, gave him something to drink. Then later he goes to a town called Gaza, and again, it's a woman. He, he, he meets a prostitute, and he stays with her. The men of the city say, well, we can capture, uh, capture him, but, but he hears of it, and he, and he escapes, and he goes to the gates of the city, and he pulls up the gates of the city, and he runs off with them. Uh, that makes uh, knocking goalposts down at the end of a football game look like the easiest thing in the world. And so he runs off. But then, Delilah. We know all about her. The difference here is it says he loves her. Something has changed. These, these others, you didn't attach love to the first woman or the prostitute. But, but now with Delilah, you, you see that there's this, this love that he has uh, for 
her, but the lords of the Philistines come to her and they say, you've got to tell us the source of his strength. And we'll give you uh, 1,100 pieces of silver. And so not only would she become wealthy, but she would become a national hero if somehow she could trap Samson and uh, deliver him to the Philistine leaders. And, and so I trust you know the story. She begins asking him the source of his strength. He tells her one thing. It doesn't work. She tells, tells him another. She says, the Philistines are upon you. It doesn't work. And another still. But then finally, day after day after day, she breaks him down. She uses the line that says, if you really loved me, you would tell me. If you don't tell me, it means you really don't love me. And so he told her about his hair. Now, really, it wasn't his hair that was his strength. It was the spirit of the Lord. But it was his hair that said, no, I'm a Nazarite. I'm consecrated to God. God is using me for a particular purpose. Uh, and I'm dedicated to that. And, and so uh, he sleeps on her knees and Someone comes and shaves his head and he wakes up and didn't even know the spirit of the Lord had left him. And so he thinks, I can go after them, I can do this, but he couldn't. And so they take him and they couch out his eyes and they put him in prison and make him an entertainer of sorts, Samson. Then finally we realize what this is all about. Finally we realize that this is about our God and their God. Uh, you can see when they, when they have Samson in their grasp and in prison, they say, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. They're basically saying, Dagon, our God, he's the one who's, who's been victorious now. And now we have uh, Samson in our grasp, in our midst. Uh, Then this, this final scene, verse 28, it's still rather unsatisfying, honestly. He says, Samson called to the Lord and said, Oh God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. Oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Wouldn't you want him to pray? Oh God, use me in such a way that I can deliver your people from the Philistines so that you would be honored and shown to be great. But, but even still, he just is worried about himself. And this is, I want to be avenged because they plucked out my eyes. Look what they've done. Look what they've done. Uh, what they've done to me. There he is. How do we understand this? I mean, if you think about it, it begins with great hope, this great promise, this Nazarite's going to come and begin saving Israel from the Philistines. He ends up doing that. But in a way that none of us like. None of us want to say to our kids, grow up and be like Samson. Right? Uh, we don't want to be like Samson. If God says, I want you to deliver my people in any way, shape, or form, or be of use to me in any way, shape, or form, we, we don't want to be like that. We were thinking, no, that's not the model. I bet there's a better model uh, for us to follow. So, so how do we understand this? Well, if you go back to a verse I skipped in chapter 14, verse 4. This is right after... Samson says to his parents, I want you to go get this woman for me to be my wife from... Uh, this place in Timnah. And this is kind of the parenthetical 
narrator, narrator's um, uh, in, insight for us. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking that he there is God, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. I mean, you can only think about what his parents must have been thinking. They even said it. You, you shouldn't take this woman to be your to be your wife. You should get an Israelite. And, and they were right to think that. And they were right to scold him. But God had a purpose that was unseen, unknown to them. And we scratch our heads, at least I do, and I say, God, how could you, how could you do that? How could you use that guy sinning like that? How could you use him so that you would have an opportunity against the Philistines. Couldn't you have done it a different way? I suppose he could. I mean, he's God, but he doesn't. He uses Samson at this point, this particular man. And what I realize is when I read the story of Samson, the focus of my attention shouldn't be Samson. The focus of my attention should be God. Now, that shouldn't strike us as odd since it is the Bible, since it is about God. And we say that all the time. Everybody who reads the Bible says that, and it's really true. And we really need to get our, our hands around that, that somehow we need to think about God here and what he's doing. He's using this flawed, sinful vessel, Samson, but God is at work in his way. We often say and should say that God is sovereign. We have said before that God ordains all things that come to pass. God is sovereign over all things. But we also say that we're responsible as human beings as we make decisions. We're responsible for the decisions that we make. We're responsible moral agents, the theologians tell us. And we wonder how those two things fit together. And, and it's difficult for us to fit them together, but it isn't difficult for God to fit them together. Because he's able. I remember as a kid, a couple of the elders in my church growing up, always prayed like this. They said, God, I want you to rule and overrule. And as a kid, I would sit and listen to those prayers. Usually they went off for another 20 minutes after that. I didn't always go along with them. It was a long one. But that expression, to rule and to overrule, and I wondered what that meant. And so as I got older, I asked. One of them said, well, God rules over all things. And then he overrules our wrong intentions. He overrules the intentions that we might have that won't fit his divine plan. He overrules our intentions so that they ultimately do fit in his divine plans. And the illustration given to me was the illustration of, of Joseph. It's the classic. Joseph, you remember, his brother sold him into slavery. And you remember that he ended up, Joseph did, the second in command in Egypt... In such a position that he actually saved his family, the very ones who had sold them into slavery, from the famine. So that his family, family of Israel, could continue. And you know the summary statement. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. That God overruled their intentions. 
Well, they made all these decisions. They were their intentions to sell him into slavery and get him out of their life. But, but God overruled all of that in such a way that his end, God's end, was ultimately accomplished. And we scratch our heads and we say, how could that all be? Because there were so many decisions, so many things of individual people made between the time he was sold into slavery and between the time he saved his family. But, but, but yet, God was in all of that. Even though many of those decisions were sinful. Many of those decisions came from flawed people. But yet God's ends still were accomplished. You think of Pharaoh. In ancient Israel, when the Israelites were enslaved there, remember Pharaoh said, I want you to, to, to the midwives, I want you to, every baby boy that's born, I want you to, I want you to kill them. Don't let them live. But God overruled all of that so that one baby boy that was born lived and actually was raised in Pharaoh's household. And actually ultimately came and was the deliverer of the Israelites. All kinds of decisions being made by human beings. But God who is sovereign over all things ruled and overruled so that his intentions were carried out. Dramatically, of course, we see that in the crucifixion of Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, as Peter is preaching, verse 22 He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so God had a definite plan. He was laying it out. This was predestined by God to take place. He did it through the hands of lawless men and through the hands of lawless men. Saved his people from their sins. It's just amazing. It's no surprise that when Samson's parents interact with the angel of the Lord, Samson's dad asks him, what's your name? You can see this in chapter 13, in verse 18. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, why do you ask my name, seeing It is wonderful. In other words, it's it's way higher than you can ever even wonder. Uh, The psalmist in Psalm uh, 139, verse 6, puts it like this. The psalmist says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I can't attain it. And so what we realize is that we're watching this take place. It literally is amazing. It really is wonderful. And we scratch our heads. We say, God, how can you do that? And he goes, I can't. I accomplished my ends even with the likes of this one, one Samson. There's great hope for us, we have to realize. I mean, I kind of feel bad for Samson's parents. I wish they would have had the script like we do. You can only imagine. I mean, we live this, don't we, sometimes? We wonder, what's really happening here? Is anything good ever going to come out of this? I know the promises of God. I know the end result. I just have no idea how that's going to work out. I have no idea how we're going to get there. And yet, Samson, you can only imagine his parents going, I have no idea. 
I remember the angel saying, he's going to begin to save us from the Philistines. It just seems like he's just a delinquent. He's a sex-addicted, ego-driven man. And how is that ever going to result in what God has promised? And yet it did. And there's something fantastic. As Ryan was reading from Hebrews chapter 11, of course, you heard the name Samson. And Hebrews 11 is this great uh, listing of, of these people of faith, many of whom we admire. And yet we, we get down to, as we did last week, to, to Samson and Jephthah, even David. And we wonder, how can they be listed there given their great sins? Samson in particular, he doesn't seem hardly at all to be interested in God's agenda and God's things. Even at the very end, he doesn't say, God, I want to do this for your glory. He says, God, I don't want to do this so I'm avenged. And, and, and still, he's listed here uh, among the people of faith. And we wonder what's really going on there. And not only that, that we get to chapter 12, and it says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Samson's one of those witnesses. This great cloud that's cheering us on. And you wonder, okay, they're witnesses to what are they testifying? I, I think they're testifying. To the great power and grace of God. To enable even the likes of Samson. To persevere. In faith. To do what God has called him to do. You get the sense if we ever met Samson. And where you know maybe in heaven there's a place called the Faith Hall of Fame. You know. There isn't by the way. But let's just say there is. And you're there. And you shake hands with all these people and you meet Samson. And you kind of scratch your head and you go, so how'd you get here? And he'd say, the same way you did. That God preserved my faith. He sustained it. He kept me. And while I wasn't always gripping him, he was always gripping me. He had a plan. He worked it out. And I stand as amazed as you, I think you'll say. Ever wonder if God can really use you? Do you ever wonder if God can ever use the ones sitting around you, all of us together? There's hope as we look at Samson. These questions I just wrote down the other day. I said, Do I think that God can really only use me? I'm sorry, do I, let me put it this way. Do you think that God can use you to do what he wants in the world? Do you think that God can use you to do what he wants in the world? And, and your answer, because you're sitting in church, is yes, of course, God can do anything. He can, he, can, he, can, he can use me, even given my life. But then this. When you look at the times you think God has used you in his service, are they times when you've had the right attitude, the right thoughts, the right behavior, when you've behaved righteously and without sin? I mean, is that what you attested to? Well, I, I was just, on, I was really good that day. And, and you look back and you go, no, because I can see even on my best day, even on my best day, it was the Lord. <laughs> he accomplished his purpose. Through me. See, we have great hope. 
Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, let's try to be as flawed and sinful as we possibly can, so that then we can look back and say, oh yeah, really it was the Lord. No, 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 no. We're, we're called to obey. We're called to be faithful. And when we sin, we're called to confess. But the point is, don't wait to be perfect. Don't wait to be perfect to be used by God, to trust him and step out. To love as he's called us to love. To step out and share your faith as he's called us to share our faith. To step out and, and do good for those uh, to whom we must do good. Don't wait till you're perfect because you'll wait forever. Uh, don't think that your sin will keep you from fulfilling his will. Oh, confess it. Acknowledge it. Repent. All of that. Don't let it stop you. Think of this one. Samson. Finally this. As this partial, at least, savior of Israel, we can't help but think of Jesus. I mean, here he is, a miraculous birth, announced by angels. Um, Here's this, this great calling upon his life. And, and he's filled with the Spirit of God to do it. And he's victorious at his greatest point of weakness and even at his death. And, and at his death, what happens is that he defeats not simply the Philistines, but the God of the Philistines. He renders the God of the Philistines inept. The people were pr- pronouncing that, that what had happened was because Samson was in their capture, that what, what, what was happening was that their god, Dagon, had been victorious over Samson's god. But then not so much. Because they all died. And their temple was destroyed. And their god was destroyed. And the announcement was, no, 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 no. Samson's god is victorious. Jesus. Miraculous birth. Announced by angels. Powered, led by the Spirit of God. Victorious at his weakest point in his death. And when he died, you see, the same thing happened to Satan that happened to Dagon. And now we can see it. What happened was, when Jesus was being killed, all the demons and Satan were saying, we've been victorious over God. And and then, not so much. Because then he rose. And when he rose, the victory was his. And the scripture says in Colossians chapter 2 that he triumphed over Satan, humiliating him. And that's exactly what happened. Now the difference here is that when uh, Samson died, his rule died. But when Jesus died and rose, his rule then was in glory. And he rules and reigns over all things. And so when we say, uh, can he really use us? The answer is yes. Why? Because he lives to do that. You say, but, but, but I know my sin. So does he. And he's dealt with it. Receive his forgiveness. Don't stop. Don't let that keep you. Don't say, oh, I just had a bad thought. I really can't talk to that person. Oh, I didn't pray today, therefore I can't. No, no. Confess it. Not lightly. Really. Receive the forgiveness of God. And then keep marching on, trusting 
that he's keeping you marching on. The scripture says, there was no king in Israel. Therefore, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Well, they got a king, Saul didn't help much. Got a king, David helped a little. Advent's coming. We get to talk about the real king. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us. That you'll be with us, please. I pray for me that I don't get hung up on Samson's sins and flaws. That I can't imagine you using any sinful, flawed person. Because here we are. A church of flawed and sinful, forgiven people. Please help us. Fill us with your spirit in a way that empowers us to really live and to witness of the truth of Christ. To your great preserving power that enables us to persevere in the faith to which you've called us. Father, please use us to bless your kingdom. Please use us to bring you glory. And this I pray. In Jesus' name.